The Reign of the Kings, Messianic Psalm. It's written by Solomon, but, is, but it is his inspired uh, prophetic vision, his inspired prophecy of the great king, Messiah, and what I would call the millennial reign, the thousand years. And we'll see how we come to that as we look at it in Psalm 72. There it is. Okay. The first characteristic of the reign of the great king is justice. The Bible teaches us something about both northern and southern kingdoms. History teaches us the same thing about the rise and fall of nations in the Gentile world, and it is this. In the due course of time, there always grows within a society elitism. There are those who are the elites of society. In that world, they are the ones with the power and the money. Therefore, with the power and the money, they can purchase their own justice system. And the justice system uh, becomes uh, out of balance so that whatever pleases and strengthens and helps the elites is how the judgments are made. This is no different from anything in the Bible that we're taught. Um, Book of Hosea, talking about the end, the, the end, the close of the northern kingdom. Jeremiah, talking about the close, the end, the judgment coming on the southern kingdom. And I say, as I said, historically, the same thing among nations in the Gentiles. One of the things that is inspired here with regard to the characteristics of the king of the kingdom is that he will be an impartial judge. Justice will be equal for all. Now, it's supposed to be like it all the time, but history shows that it's different. Thank God in heaven that our nation is not there yet, right? Okay, all right. A Song of Solomon. So this is inspired by Solomon. And if you think about that, Solomon is as much of a type of Christ in the messianic rule, Solomon over the kingdom, the king over the kingdom of Israel, as anything else in the Bible. So in that way, Solomon is like a type. And perhaps the inspired song helps Solomon in some ways to apply these characteristics about which he is inspired to write here with regard 
to the Messianic king. So this is seen here as a, as a Messianic prophetic writing. A Song of Solomon. Elohim, give your judgments to a king and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people justly and your people with justice. May the mountains bear peace for the people in the hills through righteousness. May he judge the poor of the people and may he save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. If you will look at this, the cry of the psalmist is that the king would be righteous and his judgments would be just and true and that it didn't matter where across the land he would issue his judgments. It would always be fair. That's why it says in verse three that even across different geographical regions, it's always going to be the same. Even across, even across the lines of, uh, of, uh, of riches and poverty and whatever, his justice will be the same. And one of the things that this righteous king would need to attend to is that he would need to attend impartially to those who are the poor of the people. If they're given a fair shake in a court system, then the premise is they, ha they have, a, an, they have a, an opportunity to develop like anybody else. And so the king, the righteous king, is to apply the law equally across the land everywhere and across all classes of people. So first characteristic, now, when you think of the millennial reign, you think, oh, that's going to be a, a perfect world because Satan will be bound for a thousand years and, and stuff like that. Well, let me tell you, especially Isaiah, but the Bible gives us indications that even though there is no tempter loosed on the people of the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand year reign, it is the final of the dispensations, uh, the stewardships of time, if you will. Um, and it starts out great. It's like every other stewardship of time. It starts out great, even the church. The church starts out wonderfully well. But leaven creeps in and leavens the whole lump so that by the time you get to the end of the church age, you have horrible reports Prophetic, prophetically from the apostles like Timothy, Paul's letter to, to Timothy, for example, um, and uh, of uh, uh, what uh, even, even what other apostles uh, write about the close of the age, Jude, for example, and then you have the seven church ages, I think, in the seven churches, and the last one is totally bad. And of the seven only two don't have anything bad to say about them from Christ. Only two. The other five have a scathing condemnation in there somehow. And the worst is the last one. In my view, the seventh age of the church, the last age of the church, the Laodicean church. Um, 
So the church age starts out wonderfully well and it progresses and all this kind of stuff. But even the church age falls into darkness. The Old Testament era, it fell into darkness. The patriarchal period fell into darkness and so forth and so on. Even in the millennial reign, what happens at the close of the thousand years? Satan is loosed for a little season. And even after they have enjoyed a thousand years of the personal reign of Christ as king of kings, even after that thousand years, there is still a portion of the world population who will rise up in rebellion against Christ and follow Satan for that little season. And then, of course, it's curtains for everything. I mean, then that's when, that's when all of the universe is dissolved and the great white throne is, of judgment is set up and death and Hades give up the dead that are in them. And, and uh, then the books are opened and, the, and there won't be any first heaven and first earth left. That's what happens. Well, that happens. So here's the point. Across those thousand years, and Isaiah makes this clear, and I'm, I don't really have the time to go and reference Isaiah, but there are from time to time citizens in that world who openly sin. And, in, and punishment is immediately administered, and that punishment is death. They're killed. From time to time, albeit seemingly on rare occasions, even nations, and there are nations in the millennium, not just the nation of Israel. Nations, apparently led by their kings, will not do what they are told to do, which is namely go at the appointed time on the calendar and at the appointed time make their way to Jerusalem and be taught personally by Christ himself, and some of them won't do it. Well, that will bring judgment upon those nations. That even happens in the millennium. So understand that even in the millennium, there's a cry for, for justice. And, and of course, the king of kings will, is absolutely unbiased, and he will apply the law equally and righteously across the board. So next, how do the people respond to this? Well, let's look at it, beginning in verse five. May they fear you in the presence of the sun and before the moon for generations upon generations. Here's what verse five is saying. May the people live in the reverential awe of the son of God as long as this current creation stands. Now understand, and I just mentioned it, to understand that finally the current creation will cease to exist. The elements will melt with fervent heat, Peter says. Uh, the revelator says that uh, from his presence, when he sets up the great white throne, from his presence, the earth and the heavens fly away. So it's all just dissolved. Uh, now, into what realm exists or stands the great white throne in the judgment bar. I don't know. Don't tell anybody I said that, but I don't really know. It's something between the demise of the first heaven and the first earth and the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. 
be interesting to find out, won't it? Point in verse five is, there will be many generations that will come through that thousand years. And during that whole thousand years, the call is for the people of the world to live in reverential awe of this great king. May it descend as rain upon cut vegetation, as raindrops that drip upon the earth. May the righteous flourish in his days and much peace until there is no moon, until until the Lord calls an end to it. May the righteous flourish. There's, there is this description of the millennial earth, again, mostly found in the final chapters of Isaiah, but there is this description of the millennial earth that see, apparently sees the earth restored into a uh, pre-flood world type of existence so that the entire world is such that anyone can prosper and be very uh, productive. The, the earth will, will produce, the curse removed, uh, people can, can expand in their production and the favor is really given to those who are righteous. And as I said earlier, some are deemed to be unrighteous because they have broken the law and they did it without a tempter. It just comes from out of the heart of the man. And they're punished and they cannot produce, but the righteous will produce. And this is the promise. This is one of the characteristics of the millennial kingdom. And it's, uh, it's one of the characteristics of the blessing of the king upon those who are deemed righteous. They will flourish in their days and much peace until there is no moon. There, are, there, there may be fights and, and disagreements, but there is no upheaval and no war until the very end of the millennial reign when Satan is loosed for a little season. So there's much peace a time of peace uh, all the way through the reign of the Messiah until the very end. So another, this is still yet another characteristic of the reign of uh, the Messiah. Now in that day, the king will reign universally across the board. He will be the king of kings. There will be other lesser kings, but they will serve the king. That is typified, and we've studied this, on Wednesday night, that is typified and illustrated in the reign of Solomon. For whatever reason, he did not see fit to absorb certain smaller kingdoms into his kingdom of Israel. He just permitted the kings of those kingdoms to maintain their rulership and let them, let them remain as smaller kingdoms, but they were vassals of the larger kingdom of Israel. Uh, that's why we can see that even Solomon has not completely ruled over the entire promised land, even in Solomon's day. But it will happen. Christ will in his day. May he reign from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the land. May nobles kneel before him and may his enemies lick the dust. So 
This is sort of the same thing that I mentioned a while ago that Isaiah talks about when he speaks of kings bringing their glory uh, into Jerusalem and, and so forth. May the kings of Tarshish and the isles return tribute. Now these, the, the, those the isles of Tarshish, the kings of Tarshish, they were, they were really big into uh, seafaring trade. And they were very wealthy because they could carry, they, were, they, they knew more about seamanship than uh, anybody else in history. And so they became very wealthy being able to distribute goods by their vessels. So being, it's, they're seen here as rich and they return a tribute to the king. May the kings of Sheba and Seba approach with a gift. Of course, the queen of Sheba in the time of Solomon does that very thing as do other kings in his reign. I think we talk more about that as we get further into the reign of Solomon. And all kings will prostrate themselves to him. May all nations serve him. And that's the general direction of the nations of the millennial kingdom. Great, uh, the great extent of power and the influence of the people of God. What about the church? We're, we've been raptured and resurrected and, and we're there to rule and reign with him. Uh, for a thousand years, a kingdom of priests, kings and priests. I've, I don't, I've read a lot of talk about it. I've read a lot of uh, commentaries and those who wrote the commentaries would surmise what they thought. They would extract, for example, from the parables that talk about uh, you've been faithful over many things and I'll, I'll make you ruler over many things. You rule 10 cities, you rule five cities and so forth. I don't know. I mean, are resurrected saints school teachers? Are they the ones who are the mayors and the governors? And, and I don't know. I, I don't know. But it's, it's an interesting thought. That said, the righteousness, the rule of righteousness will, will permeate the world and kings will come and pay obey, abeyance to the king of kings and all nations serve him. Now they serve him in righteousness and the purpose, Christ doesn't need their money. Although the nation of Israel is most favored nation in that day will be the wealthiest nation. It's not that he needs their money, but what he calls for is their obedience that they may continue. You know, we will study the holy word of God forever. It's eternal. Forever, O Lord, you have settled your word in heaven, says the psalmist in another place. So there is, there is an eternal study of the word of God and how we develop in that. It's going to be very interesting. I mean, you know, my mind runs away with me sometimes. I think, well, you know, what if, what if we learn that, <laughs> that turning the Hebrew upside down is another language we hadn't learned yet. And, and oh, you know, you just don't know. But uh, how will we study? What will we do? This is something that the Lord will reveal to us into the ages of the ages. And this is why Christ is the teacher for the blessing of the people. He brings them in and he, he can teach them and give them blessing. Uh, and the people of God would, for the most part, would certainly hunger for this. And that's why the nations would serve him to serve him in peace 
and in righteousness and to serve him joyfully uh, as, as his people. Another characteristic of this king is that he would take care of those who are poor. For he will save a needy one who cries out and a poor one who has no helper. He will have pity on the poor and needy and he will save the souls of the needy. From blows and from robbery, he will redeem their soul and their blood will be dear in his eyes. So this, this speaks of a compassionate king. Regardless of how the people may have developed or how they might represent themselves in a particular day, the passion of the king of kings is toward all of his people in righteousness with a special eye to those who are needy and he can help them. Not needy because they're sinful, but needy so that the grace of the Lord can be revealed and extended even in that day. In that time, there will be God's blessing. It will be God's kingdom. And the name of God will be the name above all names. And may he live and he will give him of the gold of Sheba. And may he pray for him constantly. All the days may he bless him. May there be an abundance of grain in the land on the mountain peaks. May its fruit rustle like Lebanon and they will blossom forth from the city like the grass of the earth. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I, can, I reveal my ignorance many times a day, every day. And I, I think of how, and you can disagree with me, it doesn't really matter because I'm just stupid and it's just a thought. First of all, I'm, I'm not real sure that I sign on to global warming. But what if the ice caps melted? There was a day in the pre-flood world where there, was no, there were no ice caps. The whole world, as a matter of fact, it's pretty, you can look it up, that fossils of plants and, and, and farm animals, these things have been found under the ice there. There was a time when those areas were plush with vegetation. Hey, that's just more corn and okra for me. If those places melt down and they can plant them, right? I don't know. Well, here's the point on this. The whole world will be productive. And the grain will be abundant. Fruit on the mountain peaks. My guess is that on ice-capped mountains, it's hard to grow fruit trees. That's my guess. I've never tried it. That's my guess. Not so in this world, all around the world. And they will blossom forth from the city like the grass of the earth. Now that's a, that's a sort of a description of the millennial earth. Restored to this perfect, productive planet that produces forth. I, I read, you may or may not have ever heard of Dr. Henry Morris. He's been dead quite a while. He was a famous scientist, a great thinker, a Christian apologist, and a deep thinking Christian. 
He wrote, uh, he is the one really who started the ministries of creationism, like what you go to at the museum and, and so forth. In one way or another, all of these people are fruits off of the tree of Henry Morris. And he has a, uh, he has a book on Genesis, a big, big thick book, and his, his take on creation is just tremendous. His take on the revelation is really something. He's a great thinker. He approaches it not just from his Christian faith, but from a scientific viewpoint um, as well. He was talking, he scoffed, and when he wrote this particular book of Genesis, there were like three billion people on planet Earth. It was back in the 60s or something. Well, now, what, eight billion? I don't know. Something like eight billion, pe eight billion people on the planet. And you hear about overpopulation and, you know, the, the planet is really, I read this and I think it was from, I think it was from one of these guys, Bill Gates or something, I was some, one of these guys and his report was, well, the report of his researchers was that the planet really could only prosper with 500 million people. So that means seven and a half billion people need to die, right? According to that, I don't know. Henry Morris, on the other hand, said, in the pre-flood world, the pre-flood world at one time could easily house and feed 32 billion people. <laughs> That's a lot of people. 32 billion, I'm not even sure that many people have even lived on planet Earth since, uh, since the creation of Adam. So God makes the whole world in this time to be productive. And there's more than enough for everybody. And of course, the admonition of God is that, is that the people are to increase in the population, that all of the families and their children are or the heritage of the Lord, and it pleases God for this to happen. So if you think of people living hundreds of years and they continue to live for hundreds of years in, in a childbearing age, um, you, can, you can see how quickly and how immensely the world could be populated. Even so, there's an abundance. Blossom forth. Verse 17, may his name be forever before the sun. His name will be magnified. Now this is the name, of course, of the king of kings. And people will bless themselves with him. All nations will praise him. Solomon did not know Messiah's name at this point. Didn't know it. David didn't know his name when he moved the ark out of Shiloh. He simply called the Messiah the name. That's what he called him, the name. And, there's, and it's written that way in the Bible. We, matter of fact, we studied it in Samuel. And there's a, a take on that as Paul writes to the Philippians, whose name is the name above every name. So there is this exalted name of the Son of God, the King of Kings, and his name will be forever. And it'll be continually magnified 
and people will bless themselves with him and all nations will praise him. What a day to know that the world is full of praise for Christ. It's really something to think about. A final blessing here in this psalm. Blessed is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the God of Israel, who performs wonders alone. Blessed is his glorious name forever, and his glory will fill the entire earth. Amen and amen. And the end of this book of the Psalms ends like this. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are completed. You may remember we saw just prior to reading the passage that we studied about the death of David. It told us that he had completed his writings. So here is an affirmation of that here in uh, this psalm. Okay, let's pray and we'll be through for tonight. Father God in heaven, Lord, we marvel at what is yet to come. Prepare our hearts for what we must face in this world and prepare our hope for what we shall surely see in that world is, that is to come. In Jesus' name, amen.